welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Hello, and welcome to another episode of People, Places, Planet Podcast. My name is Heather Lutke, and I am a research associate here at the Environmental Law Institute. I will be taking over for Dominic as your new podcast host, and I'm excited to continue bringing you thought-provoking conversations about current issues central to environmental law and governance. Today, we're talking about the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, or LPAR. LPAR is a collaboration between ELI and Vanderbilt University Law School that works to identify the year's best academic articles that present legal and policy solutions to pressing environmental problems. It brings those articles to the legal and policy worlds through both an annual publication in the August issue of ELI's Environmental Law Reporter, ELR, and through an annual conference. I've enjoyed working with today's guests on this year's issue of LPAR, and I'm excited to talk about the process and this year's articles on today's episode. So joining us today to talk about the latest issue of LPAR is Linda Bregan, who is a senior attorney at ELI and a lecturer in law at Vanderbilt University Law School. Linda co-founded LPAR with our second guest, Michael Vandenberg. Mike is the David Daniels Allen Distinguished Chair of Law at Vanderbilt University Law School. We'll also be joined by Bruce Johnson, the 3L Student Editor-in-Chief of LPAR. Thanks everyone for joining us today to chat about the latest issue of LPAR. Uh, thanks, Heather. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here as well. Thanks, Heather. Awesome to be here. It's great to have all of you. So to get us started, as I already mentioned, ELR publishes the special issue of LPAR every August. Linda, can you tell us about LPAR and its objectives? Sure, and thanks, Heather, and thank you for your work on LPAR this year. So LPAR is an unusual project, but it's a project that we think is really worthwhile and fills a really important niche. And as you noted, the idea is to review the environmental legal literature each year and find law and policy proposals that we think are worth bringing to policymakers and practitioners who, frankly, just don't have the time to read law review articles. Uh, LPAR identifies a handful of creative and feasible law and policy proposals each year. And then we ask the authors if we can take their heavily footnoted, very long articles. And I kid you not, some have 700 footnotes. And I know this well because I read my husband's law review articles, and he happens to also be our collaborator on LPAR. And you're going to hear from Mike in, in a few minutes. But we take these articles and we reprint them in a shortened form in the Environmental Law Review quarter each August. And we also solicit short written commentaries from policymakers and practitioners on each article. We essentially vet the professor's proposals with a government, environmental or energy lawyer, or corporate in-house or private law firm lawyer, uh, and an NGO or nonprofit advocacy group representative. And, and we asked them, would, would this work in the real world? And I have to tell you, the authors love this. Um, after a conference, a professor said to me how much she enjoyed spending the day talking about her article with policymakers and practitioners. She said it was like a spa day for academics. So I think they really enjoy getting their ideas out there. Um, in addition to the shortened law journal articles and comments, we also publish a short article each year that includes data on the number of law review and environmental journal articles published each year and the topics covered. And, you know, as you might imagine, topics have varied considerably over the years. When we started this project over a decade ago, people were just starting to focus on climate change. And in recent years, not surprisingly, it's the focus of many, many law journal articles. 
Um, in addition, we recently started including a list of the top 20 articles we identify each year, not just the small handful we select. And, and these are the articles that we bring to our expert advisory committee for review. The committee is made up of leaders from government and private practice, corporations, nonprofits across the political spectrum. And I also just want to mention, by way of background, that LPAR is not only a written product, the, the August issue of the Environmental Law Reporter, but each spring we convene a conference in D.C or unfortunately virtually the last couple of years at which the articles and comments are presented and then we typically also have a conference in Nashville at Vanderbilt Law School which is another very important component of LPAR as you mentioned LPAR is a collaboration of Vanderbilt Law School and uh, it's also actually a class at the law school in which students review and evaluate the articles. And we, as you mentioned, have a star student with us today, Bruce Johnson, our editor-in-chief this year, who you're going to hear from later in the podcast. Um, similar to the law review um, process at many law schools, students enter a write-on competition at the end of their first year of law school to be accepted into the class for two years and then to publish a journal issue. But unlike a law review, the journal is instead the special issue of ELR each August. Um, and and ELR already reaches the practitioners and policy makers that are our target audience. So it's really a perfect fit. Um, and the students have a managing board just like a law review. I think Bruce will tell you more about our selection process later in the podcast. But that's LPAR in a nutshell. Uh, and to wrap up and answer your second question, Heather, um, our key objectives are to provide a vehicle for moving ideas from the academy to the policymaking realm. Uh, second is to improve the quality of legal scholarship, which I know Michael want to talk about later, but we want to encourage professors not just to write theoretical work that ignores policy implications. And then third, and really our most important goal here, is to provide a first-rate educational experience for law students who are interested in environmental and law and policy. So, Heather, uh, back to you. Awesome. Thanks for that overview. It definitely is important work. So, I'm wondering, Linda and Mike, how and why did the two of you come up with the idea for LPAR? So how did we form LPAR? Well, one of the experiences I had, having served as the EPA chief of staff and as a partner in a large law firm, when I moved over into teaching, was that I was writing articles that were grappling with the core theories of environmental law and policy. Uh, and the last third of many of my articles would include a discussion of the feasibility of whatever idea I was developing. And what I found over and over again is that more senior members of my faculty would, when they reviewed my articles, say, you need to strip out all of the discussion of the feasibility of your policy or how it would apply, because that's not what we do, and it won't get you tenure, frankly. And I thought that was crazy. Uh, I thought it was crazy for, uh, for two reasons. The one is the one that Linda's already mentioned, which is that you don't want to take a group of the most active and energetic and intellectually sophisticated people in the field and cabin them off in an ivory tower. You want them to provide ideas for the policy community. But secondly, grappling with feasibility is actually an incredibly important reason uh, or way to make sure that your theoretical work is better. There's a famous joke about how an economist opens a can if the economist is on a desert island, and the way they do that is they assume a can opener. And that's the way a lot of environmental scholarship looks. When someone confronts a big problem, they assume the feasibility of adopting whatever remedy would provide the optimal response. But we all know now, after decades uh, without a major new uh, environmental pollution control statute, that feasibility is a major issue. 
polarization in Congress is very strong, stronger than it has been uh, since the 1960s on environmental issues. And Congress has been in gridlock in major statutes. The White House is swinging back and forth, and the states are deeply divided, too, into something you might even think of as two Americas. So all of that means that the standard feasibility issues that we might have been able to set aside decades ago can no longer be set aside. And when we think about feasibility issues, now we have to grapple more rigorously with theoretical questions. And I'll say that one of the things we tried to do as we were reacting to this challenge that I faced and pulling feasibility out of my early articles was to say, well, let's try to create incentives for faculty members around the country to actually grapple with feasibility in a realistic way. And that's in part what LPAR is designed to do. As Linda mentioned, you know, this is an academic spa on some point. It's a great way to recognize scholarship. And when we recognize that scholarship, we're promoting and helping faculty members and rewarding them for grappling with feasibility. And lastly, I would say that after several decades in which the discussion of feasibility was almost verboten, it was almost uh, um, uh, impossible as a faculty member across multiple different disciplines, not just law, to really grapple with feasibility, we're starting to see a real sea change on this topic. And for example, there was a piece in Nature recently discussing the, uh, the importance of grappling with feasibility in climate models. I've published some papers on the topic. Others have published the paper, uh, papers on the topic in a range of different social science journals. So I think LPAR on some level, which was formed in the mid to late uh, 2000s, was beginning to signal something that you're starting to see become very widespread in the peer-reviewed social science literature, which is that we simply can't develop the most sophisticated and successful responses to large environmental problems unless we get much better at assessing and incorporating assessments of feasibility into basic theoretical research as well as policy work itself. So that's a long way of, of grappling with that question. Yeah, and, and this is Linda. I would just, you know, add that the, the idea for LBAR actually originated in a very late night drive from D.C. to Nashville, uh, where we both uh, now live. And, you know, in addition to the piece of this that Mike was just discussing, um, we had both been in private practice. We both had also been in the Clinton administration. Mike was the EPA chief of staff. I was an associate director in the White House Office of Environmental Policy. And we both knew how little time there is to read. Uh, especially law journals, uh, let alone think about creative new ideas when you have demanding jobs like that. And so we were talking about how it would have been great to know about some of the ideas that these smart law professors were developing in the academy uh, when we were in government and private practice, and that might have informed our thinking and, and possibly our work. Uh, Mike, I don't know if you want to add to that point. No, that's absolutely true. I, I had a responsibility when I was at EPA to try to help bring the best ideas that we could find into the policymaking apparatus of the agency. Uh, and yet so many law review articles either were so long and detailed that they were very difficult to get through in the amount of time that someone has in a job like that. Or again, they started with assumptions that made them not that valuable because they produced implausible outcomes. So we're trying to tackle both those problems. Thanks for sharing that. I hadn't heard that kind of origin story before, so that was fun for me as well. So Linda, can you tell us about some of the articles you picked this year? 
Uh, sure. So we picked four articles this year and two honorable mentions. And I can just give you what we call the big ideas from each of the four articles. Uh, one of the articles is entitled The Law and Science of Climate Change Attribution. And it was written by Michael Berger, Jen, uh, Jessica Wentz, and Radley Horton. Um, the article was written by actually a very impressive multidisciplinary uh, team uh, and does a very thorough assessment of the state of climate climate attribution science. This is linking climate change and its impacts to anthropogenic sources of greenhouse gas emissions. And the authors make several recommendations, um, which include encouraging policymakers and practitioners to further pursue and invest in research to reduce uncertainties in this area. Uh, and they also forward the provocative contention that attribution research should be used in litigation uh, to establish standing, to demonstrate causation, and to provide, um, to prove obligations and redressability. Uh, so we had a very interesting discussion um, about that, about those recommendations and others that are contained in their article. Um, in another article we selected entitled, Another Game Changer in the Making, Lessons from States Advancing Environmental Justice Through Mapping and Cumulative uh, Impact Strategies, Charles Lee, who is a veteran environmental justice leader, extols Cal EPA and US EPA's environmental justice mapping tools. Now, these are our tools that uh, use quantitative data sets to identify and characterize vulnerable communities that are disproportionately burdened by multiple pollution sources. And um, Charles Lee posits that these mapping tools provide an easy replicable roadmap for states and localities looking to incorporate environmental justice concerns into public policy by systematically devoting resources to overburden and vulnerable communities. And he also addresses how these tools can be used in land use planning, facility siting and permitting. Uh, the article is really timely and important and, and we hope states and localities and stakeholders will, will take note. Um, another article uh, that we included this year is entitled Zombie Energy Laws, uh, probably gets the best title award. Uh, and this is by Professor Josh Macy. And he makes the controversial argument, as we learned from our commenters at the conference, um, that rules designed to protect consumers in the public utility era are being used now to protect incumbents. And he says essentially this is hamstringing decarbonization efforts in restructured energy markets. Uh, Professor Macy argues that regulators should prohibit vertically integrated utilities from using state rate-making proceedings to recover losses that their generators incur in wholesale electricity markets. Uh, he also argues that they should ease restrictive certificate of public convenience and necessity laws to support additional energy infrastructure. And finally, Professor Macy recommends that regulators should abandon the filed rate doctrine. And again, this was a very interesting conversation at the conference as practitioners reacted to these proposals and the argument that these legal doctrines were zombies and you know at least one commentator emphasized that the filed rate doctrine for example is very much alive and well at FERC as she said. Uh, and then um, lastly, the fourth article in this LPART issue is Externalities and the Common Owner by Madison Condon. Um, Professor Condon argues that a growing number of institutional investors, by virtue of holding a very large percentage of shares in multiple industry competitors, now have incentives to engage in 
firm level climate change activism. So these investors are motivated at the portfolio level to maximize their profits by reducing negative externalities, in this case, carbon emissions. So the focus is on their entire portfolios rather than conforming to traditional expectations of profit maximizing shareholders. And she proposes that corporate law should acknowledge and, and engage with this implication of what she calls common ownership. And this is really a paradigm shifting piece that's getting a lot of attention. So as you can tell, we had a very wide range of topics and proposals this year covering energy regulation, environmental justice, climate change litigation, and corporate law, Heather. Yeah, thanks for telling us about them. One of the ones I found personally really interesting was the article, Externalities in the Common Owner by Madison Condon that you mentioned. Um, Mike, could you elaborate about the kind of commentary we got on that article? Certainly. The commentary was, uh, was valuable in part because the selection of the Condon article and the comments on it are just such a great example of how LPAR is translating very complex ideas from the theoretical literature into core lessons and insights that are very important for the day-to-day -day practice of environmental law and policy and the development of new laws and policies. So a core question that many people ask is whether investors are truly motivated to push the companies they invest in to reduce their carbon emissions. And the example that I can come up with that's, that's most powerful right now is that just recently the Exxon management lost a contest with some major institutional investors over whether it would add additional members to its board of directors who care about climate change and who are focused on climate change. And again, the effort was uh, advocated by institutional investors. And so that's a remarkable thing. And now Exxon has on its board, uh, board members of the board of directors who care deeply about the climate related issues. We saw a similar issue recently with Chevron where Chevron management opposed a shareholder proposal that would require it to disclose the carbon emissions associated with the oil and gas itself, it's called scope three emissions. And again, major institutional investors supported the proposal and it passed. So those are two examples of truly different and potentially paradigm shifting type activities that are going on. And the Condon article really grapples with the question of why institutional investors are taking these kinds of positions. Do they really have incentives to reduce emissions or are they just engaging in greenwashing? And a standard economic analysis would suggest that investors profit when the firms they invest in make more money by externalizing harms, such as through greenhouse gas emissions. The company gets the benefits of the lower price of its goods and we all share in the cost of climate change so the company has an incentive to pollute. And similarly, the standard analysis suggests that investors make more money when the companies they invest in make more money by polluting more, by externalizing the harms and reducing their costs. And that's the standard story. So what makes the Condon article interesting is because it does explore this new economic literature that's emerging that says, no, the standard story perhaps isn't completely correct that some investment management firms now own such large and diversified portfolios that they don't maximize the value uh, of those uh, portfolios if the companies they invest in make their money through pollution that harms the other companies that they invest in. So in other words, they own such a large and diversified portfolio that they essentially own much of the economy. So they have an incentive to reduce negative externalities such as greenhouse gas emissions from the companies that they invest in. 
John Coffey at Columbia Law School also has a leading article on this topic. And the content article didn't develop the theory, but it is importing the theory into thinking about what's going on in the environmental topic. And on many uh, fronts, the content article is actually fairly skeptical about it, more so than some of our commentators, as I'll get to. So in short, because diversified investors seek to maximize profits at the portfolio level, as Linda mentioned, rather than at the firm level, they have incentives to perform an important environmental governance function. So in that way, the Condon article plays an essential role in the growing literature around shareholder activism. It helps to explain that this shareholder activism may have had so much success, not just because it's, uh, it's playing on the altruism of uh, shareholders, or not just because it's a form of greenwashing uh, by institutional investment fund managers, but because those fund managers, by reducing some types of externalities, such as greenhouse gas emissions, actually are achieving their economic interests. That will increase the overall value of their portfolios, even if it causes some oil and gas or other firms to lose value, at least in the short term. So that's the Condon piece, and it is actually, as I mentioned, quite cautious about whether the growth of this universal or common owner idea is a good thing. Condon's worried about anti-competitive concerns, that there might be a form of price fixing that goes on, and she's worried about some other concerns too. And she essentially concludes that diversified investors inappropriately step into the shoes of regulators and act as if they understand the underlying business better than do industry experts. Now, I'm personally more bullish on this development. I think it helps explain what we saw with Exxon and Chevron. And so is our first commentator, Rick Alexander, who has formed a new NGO called the Shareholder Commons. And the Shareholder Commons is developing a set of environmental safety and governance, or ESG guidelines. These are rules that shareholders can apply equally to all companies that can steer corporate behavior worldwide. And what Alexander uh, notes is that there's a tension between the desire of shareholders to maximize portfolio values and the desire of corporate managers to maximize firm-specific values. But as he says, the question isn't whether the shareholders are an ideal proxy for the public interest, but whether they're better than or an important countervalence to the power that resides in corporate managers and financial system intermediaries as well as complement to the power that resides in political bodies. So in essence, what Alexander is pointing out is something that comes out of studying feasibility, which is that we don't always look for the perfect answer. Sometimes the second best, or asking as compared to what, is the way we should approach a problem. And he's quite positive on the development of this universal or common owner theory as a basis for understanding how we might get global guidelines that would constrain corporate behavior, even if the international and national political processes fail to do so. Our second comment is from Natasha Lamb, who's in the trenches. Natasha is a co-founder of and managing partner uh, at the sustainable wealth management firm called Arjuna Capital. She's an active investor and a portfolio manager, and their firm integrates ESG considerations into client investment port portfolios, and her comment is written from that perspective as an actual investor in this process. Again, a great example of the function that LPAR serves. Her comment essentially validates one of the core propositions of the universal owner theory. She confirms that as a diversified investor herself, her firm is, as she says, concerned about the outside impact that these companies like oil and gas companies, externalities will have on the climate crisis, 
on GDP and therefore on her clients' diversified investment portfolios. So she's essentially validating that core observation or hypothesis of, uh, of common owner theory. And then the third and final comments were from James Andrus, an investment manager and financial markets lead at the California Public Retirement, uh, Employees Retirement System, commonly known as CalPERS. And then Ann Simpson, who's a managing investment director at CalPERS as well. And as many of you probably know, CalPERS is one of the largest uh, retirement funds in the world. And CalPERS was the convener and the co-founder of Climate Action 100 Plus, which is a shareholder climate advocacy group. And CalPERS and, and uh, Climate Action 100 Plus uses their uh, comments to provide background on CalPERS' focus on climate change and their work with Climate Action 100 Plus. So again, this Climate Action 100 Plus is this network of investors that's pushing the 100 plus largest carbon emitters in the world to adopt decarbonization strategies. In, a sense, in essence, the comment um, by Andrus and Simpson shows that CalPERS is a great example of the kinds of portfolio-owned advocacy that universal owner theory predicts. So CalPERS helps drive Climate Action 100 Plus, and Climate Action 100 Plus then helps drive firms to decarbonize. What our commenters argue is that the research um, that, uh, that Condon points to doesn't support the concerns about anti-competitive risks arising from universal owners, and they make several other points that support the idea of a universal owner concept. Also, Anders and Simpson argue that Conan should have addressed institutional investors' actual motivations for reducing carbon emissions over and above portfolio-wide benefits. And they point to their belief that a company can improve performance by improving its ability to adapt uh, to the current transition to a lower carbon-intensive economy. So in other words, they're giving additional reasons that they think Condon should have wrestled with. So to me, this is an ideal example where we have a theoretical piece that's bringing a new idea into the environmental literature. So we produce a short version of it, which makes it easier for practitioners to grapple with the idea. And then we have three comments that range from quite positive to much more mixed about the value of this idea and that point out what people in the real world are actually doing with this idea and the extent to which the idea predicts the kind of behavior that we see. Thanks, Mike. Bruce, I want to pull you into the conversation a bit, too. So as the student editor-in-chief, how does the article selection process work? Hey, thanks again for having me, Heather. It's a real pleasure to speak about LPAR on this podcast um, and a real honor to be this year's editor-in-chief. So as was kind of discussed, what, what makes LPAR unique from the more traditional law school journals is that you know, instead of reviewing articles submissions from authors, we instead review articles that have already been published in various leading legal journals with the ultimate goal of selecting a top 20 article list, which we eventually narrow down to three or four, which we'll end up republishing in a modified way in the ELR August edition. So as our goal with LPAR is to promote environmental law and policy scholarship, we really put a key emphasis on articles that put forward well-developed policy proposals. You know, as uh, Professor Vandenberg discussed, there's sometimes a a disconnect between legal scholarship and actual innovative policy proposals. So we aim to both further broadcast and foster this type of scholarship and try to incentivize um, you know, scholars to write this, these kind of articles more often and engage in substantive policy discussions around them. 
So to do this as a class, we go through a multi-step screening and logging process to find all the articles related to environmental law and policy, which is you know, sort of daunting in the beginning, but we eventually narrow it down and through student analysis and collaborative class discussion, we'll select these articles based on how well they satisfy a certain set of criteria. Awesome, thank you. So what are those selection criteria? Right, so, so as I was saying, we first basically log every law article published in the previous year that mentions environment and or is published in a certain environmental law specific journal. So next we'll distill that list down a few times to articles that really discuss environment, environmental related topics in, in some sort of depth in a substantive way. Um, we will then have multiple students review each of those articles and put together an analysis uh, based on our specific selection criteria. So in addition to just requiring a developed policy proposal, we'll analyze articles based on uh, four different um, qualitative metrics, including persuasiveness, impact, creativity, and feasibility. So we'll think about um, whether or not this article puts forth its proposal in a persuasive manner. We'll think about whether or not if this proposal was uh, adopted, it would have some sort of substantial impact. Um, we'll think about whether or not this proposal is something new, whether it's something that's been brought up before, or maybe you know somewhere in between where it's an, an old proposal brought up in a new, in a new light. Um, and then we'll also think about feasibility. Is this something that, say it's a legislative proposal, is there any chance it will go through? Um, is it something that society is ready for? So none, as I said, those are all qualitative, so none of them are necessarily a deal breaker, but we kind of think of them together um, as a whole in addition to just more general like writing style quality, um, how interesting it is, how readable it is. So, so all those sorts of factors go into consideration. So to kind of aid in this discussion, um, usually two students will summarize each of the articles down to one single big idea sentence um, as well as a summary and they'll discuss their viewpoints on those uh, criteria and then we will share in a collaborative class discussion our thoughts on the criteria amongst each other and in, in class we will ultimately select that top 20 list through strictly student and professor discussion but then to get down to our, our final three or four articles which will ultimately publish. We use a collaborative process with an external panel of experts um, who we seek out and invite to participate. Perfect. So Bruce, you mentioned some of what goes on in the LPAR classroom. Um, and Linda mentioned earlier that one of the goals of LPAR is to provide a beneficial academic experience for the students. I know I've personally really enjoyed working on LPAR and interacting with all of you, but what did you think about the educational experience you got from the class? Can you tell us about LPAR from a student's perspective? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, LPAR has enriched my educational experience in many ways, um, and a few in particular really come to mind. So for me, one large benefit is that it's really, you know, helped develop my skills and ability to efficiently read and succinctly summarize articles. Um, throughout the course of the year, I'm reading dozens of, you know, sophisticated environmental law articles that are sometimes 25 pages, sometimes 80 pages, and you get really, really good at going through complex topics, 
boiling them down to that single big idea, thinking about our selection criteria, and even more importantly, being able to articulate those ideas in front of and among your classmates in a way that really helps you become a better advocate, which I think just is such a valuable skill to have later on in our legal careers. Um, and then along those lines, just our class discussions really help build our communication advocacy skills. So we have a very wide variety of backgrounds and viewpoints among our members. Um, we have people that have worked before in various fields, come from different parts of the country, have different political viewpoints, have different um, uh, perspectives. So it really helps to discuss articles with a group that thinks differently and kind of pushes you to explain your viewpoint um, in a very effective and clear way. And you know, beyond all that, LPAR is just a lot of fun. The way our journal operates really exposes us to such a wide variety of legal topics and really lets us dig into them. And we also engage a lot as a group outside of the classroom, whether it be gardening, hiking, backyard hangouts. So it's it's really just a great group to be a part of. Well, and, and I'll, I would just jump in and say, I'm delighted to hear that. Um, and uh, L parties, I believe, as they've become known uh, on, uh, at the law school, um, seem to be quite fun. And, and uh, Mike and I, the course instructors, are, are never invited to those. Yeah. I mean, we love we love to hang out with our professors, but you know, every once in a while, it's student-only time. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thanks both. I'm I'm glad to hear that. So, our last question of the day, Linda, where can our listeners go to learn more? Yeah, great, great, Heather. Well, the uh, LPAR conference from this year, which was a webinar, uh, is already available online. It's on both the Environmental Law Institute and Vanderbilt LPAR websites, and you can listen to it all, or you can just listen to a panel on a particular topic you're interested in. Uh, and please look for this year's LPAR issue in the August edition of ELR, which will be out soon. And also this year, the LPAR articles and comments will also be posted separately on the ELI LPAR website in August. So please check them out. Great. Thank you. Well, that's all we have for today. Thank you again so much for joining us to talk about LPAR. It was great to have all of you. Thank you. It was wonderful to be a part of the program. Really enjoyed it, Heather, and congratulations on your first ELI podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.